0: Morning. Morning. What up, Vineyard? How you doing? Good. We've got a great, a good, uh, okay. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you feel safe. You feel welcome to experience something of God. Uh, With us uh, today, a couple of uh, things to underscore the um, worship and soul care weekend. I wanted to emphasize that you don't have to be a musician or a worship leader to come to, to this event. Um, it's true that Michael O'Brien will be doing some stuff with uh, musicians and such, but as far as like the soul care portion of it, that's open to anyone. So we really want to encourage you. Mike and Susan are dear friends to uh, Sarah and I, and and they're just wonderful, wonderful folks, wonderful leaders and pastors in the Vineyard movement, and. And part of the global family, so we want to we want to give them a warm welcome. And then the night of worship on Sunday night is going to be really killer. We've got uh, a lot of different people from different Vineyard churches around the area and the region that are going to be contributing to that night of worship. Um, the regional conference is coming up next week, so we called up some friends of ours and said, "Hey, do you want to play some?" Jams with us on Sunday night, and they're like, "Yeah, okay." So they're coming up. That'll be really fun. And then also, um, the church baptism at the lake uh, is going to be really fun. Uh, If you have not been baptized, I really want to encourage you to be baptized. It's going to be a a great event. I had a woman approach me a couple weeks ago, and she said, "Hey, you met my husband?" And uh, I said, "Oh, yeah, he came to church the week before." And and she was like, he was curious about baptism. I'm like, oh, uh, does he want to be baptized? And she and she was like, no, his his mother does. And and they're a couple. They're in their like they're in their mid fifties. So I'm like putting together the math in my head. And I'm like, uh, his mom wants to be. But she's got to be pushing like 90 or something. And and then she says, she goes, yeah, she's 86 and she's in a wheelchair and she wants to be baptized. Can you do it? And I said, yeah. I said, totally, we can figure that out. How to baptize an 86-year-old woman in a wheelchair in Lake Erie. I mean, that's easy peasy, right? So we can we can handle that. So it's going to be fun, and it's a true testament to, to say that it's like never too late, right? It's like we're all beginners, and we're all, we're all just getting started in what it means to follow Jesus with our lives, and the, nobody's got it all figured out, and at 86, she's willing to say like, I want to, tell you, I want to make a public profession of my faith and be baptized Also, I wanted to remind you of the clear acrylic boxes at the door. uh, Those boxes um, fund our ministry to and with the poor. And uh, throughout the year, through Seeds of Hope, our food pantry. So so on your way out, toss a dollar in the box. Remember the poor. Um, And if you have time on, on Saturdays, serve at... Uh, at Seeds of Hope um, Food Pantry. It's really a great way to get to know um, uh, folks who are struggling in the area and who need, who need food to pray with uh, other people who are going through tough situations. It's a really great way to express your faith and your care for the community around you. Um, also, one last thing is that Mike Lowe is in the back. Mike, you want to raise your hand so people can see you? Mike has <laughs> got the honored responsibility today of handing out uh, giving statements. So for the second quarter, if you've given financially at all to Vineyard Cleveland, Mike Lowe has your giving statements. And we're trying to save a little bit on postage. And so if you know that you've given financially to the church over the second quarter, Mike Lowe has got your giving statement back there, so be sure to pick it up before you leave. Okay, that was a mouthful. All right, so we've been journeying the book of Nehemiah together, and we're about halfway through um, with the book. We're going to be in Nehemiah 7 today, and I wonder how many of you remember this. uh, There were a few in the first service, but um, If you remember the movie, I think it was put out in the 80s. It starred Tom Hanks. It was called The Money Pit. Do you remember this movie? And how Tom... Hank's character uh, purchases a, a house, and, and he quickly discovers, like, it just starts falling apart, right? And he's having to put throw money into it to fix it. There's There was no building inspection that was done to the house. And Sarah and I, when we moved to Cleveland, you know, we experienced some of that as well. We had an inspector come out and check out the house, but... He missed a few things while we were getting our hands dirty and, and uh, ripping up the 20-year-old you know, floor from the kitchen and ripping out the carpet. And I was you know, breaking my back for like four days installing hard, hardwood floors. We found out that there was like water damage all the way to the floor joists to the outside. The, the, the building inspector missed it. He missed it. It's important, you know, it's important to have building inspections to make sure uh, structures are up to code and that they're functional and that they're, you know, not going to fall down on anybody's head or whatever. It's important. And so in Nehemiah 7, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little building inspection. We're going to ask the Lord to inspect our, our hearts and uh, you know taking it out of the courtroom and and bringing it into like a relational context you know when we talk about inspection it's al- it's almost always like in a courtroom sense right like somebody's out to get you and figure out your flaws or or your faults and that's not what we're doing here we're saying Lord come inspect our hearts show us where we can grow show us where we can become more like you and so why we're doing this this morning is because Nehemiah 6, which we uh, went through last week, we discovered that the building of the wall is finished. You know, Nehemiah and the crew are done. The wall is up, and, you know, the the tides have like sort of... changed with the, with the governing nations around them. They're kind of changing their tune a little bit. They're like, oh boy, they really did it. And they didn't just do it, they did it in 52 days. And they didn't do it, they did it with the help of their God. This is a nation to be like feared. Look at them, look at them go. And so what we discover is that the wall is built But yet, there are something like six or seven more chapters that are left in the book. The story is not over. And so, as I was preparing this week, I I thought about how, like, could it be, Lord, that, like, you know, this book has, like, nothing to do with building a wall? You know, if that's all that it was about, was building a wall, like, anybody can do that. Anybody can build a wall, right? But... What's happening here is that God is using Nehemiah to rebuild a people's heart. That's what's happening. God is shaping and gathering the people of Israel, and he's rebuilding and reaffirming their identity, who they're created to be. See, they weren't created to live in all of the rubble, and all of, the, all of the ruins of Jerusalem and how the wall was broken down, they were created to be God's beloved, God's chosen. In the books of the Old Testament, we hear God speaking tenderly about his people, his sons and his daughter, the Israelites. We hear him speaking about, they're, they're chosen, they're, 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 they're meant to be protected. They're meant to have the walls around them. And so we find that the book of Nehemiah moves on and it's, it's much more about a wall, uh, much, much more than just about a wall. It's about rebuilding and reshaping the people's hearts. And so we felt like that's, that's a timely word for us um, as Vineyard Cleveland. Moving into the summer, you know, you see all of the preparation that's being done for the some 50,000 people who are going to be visiting our city in the coming week. It's craziness. Jen, our friend Jen, who, who uh, works in children's ministry, is a manager at one of the busiest Starbucks stores downtown in Playhouse Square. And so it, she's like meeting with Secret Service people and it's busy, busy, busy. It's so bustling. I was down the other day and have you seen the the huge um, fence that runs along 9th Street? It's like this fence is the real deal too. It's like steel and interlocking. Like there's a secure perimeter around downtown Cleveland. Like you're not getting in and you ain't getting out either. It's like... <laughs> You firmed it up. It's it, it's pretty secure down there. And you know, East Fourth Street is a circus. There's like MSNBC. The big booth is down there. There's like tens of thousands of dollars worth of audio equipment and cabling and cameras and hustle and bustle. The city's getting ready. So as we, uh, as the staff and I looked at um, this summer and what what we felt like or sensed God speaking to us and to our church was that like your city's being rebuilt, you guys. And your church is being rebuilt as well. like God's, And it's not just about a wall. It's not just about doing stuff. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's about your heart you know it's about you saying yes to Jesus to the things that he has for you you know the father's saying this to us he's gathering gathering people in this time to rewrite the the narrative of the city of cleveland and to rewrite the story of vineyard cleveland and so we want to we want to be a part of that we want to be a part of that and so that's where we find ourselves in the narrative. So let's pray. We'll invite God's presence and then we'll dig in together a little bit. Father, we welcome your presence with us. You say, uh, Jesus, where two or more are gathered in your name, that you're right there in the thick of it with us. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit. We come, we speak to us. Jesus, we walk the rows this morning and and um, speak tenderly to people what they need to hear this morning. I pray that you would use um, use my words to, to have positive effect in people's hearts, that they would just set in people's hearts. I pray that you would speak through me, that I would speak as I should. I pray that you would... You would use us, Jesus, to um, bring life to the city, to our city, God. We pray that you would use the hearts and hands in this room to bless, to be a blessing to Cleveland, to our neighbors, our co-workers. Or, um, just come. Come, Holy Spirit. Put your power on, on today and, and leave us with a sense of your presence. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to start um, in Nehemiah 7, verse 1. Um, we read there that after the wall had been rebuilt and I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Pause. So what we're seeing here in essence throughout the, ver- throughout the chapter of Nehemiah 7 is practically what Nehemiah is doing is he's setting up leadership. He wastes no time in putting people into positions around Jerusalem to govern the city. And what's really near and dear to my heart, what we see right off the bat is that he's putting singers and Levites into place. You say, that seems odd. Why isn't he appointing other people in other positions, you know, like construction workers, and not to devalue any other roles. But what's going on here is that uh, the, the, factor, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, songs precede movements. So anytime that you see a movement happen in culture or that you see a fresh move of God happen in the church, that time is always going to be preceded with songs. Why? Because God loves creativity. And so he'll set up songs to, to move the, the, the movement of the Spirit forward. So if you want to know about a people, if you want to know about a culture of a people, you need look no further than their songs. What's happening in the hearts of poets and artists and songwriters? Then you'll get... a, a um, a good pulse reading on where that culture is at. It's telling, isn't it? When you want to know about a culture, listen to their songs. You'll, need, you'll, you'll hear everything that you need to know. And what's happening here in Nehemiah 1 is that um, Nehemiah is seeing a broader scope for Jerusalem. He's saying, in essence, that What he's doing, the Levites are are the priestly tribe of Israel. And so what he's saying is that before anything else, before before you get people in places of, of, of influence and power in government, before you set up social structures, before you set up the courtroom, what you need to do first is set up worship. Worship always comes first, you see. And that's why Nehemiah goes forward to set up um, the singers and the Levites first. Before anything else, worship. And so I'm going to ask a series of five questions this morning that I felt like the Lord speaking to my heart this week as I prepared. And the first of those questions is, is honoring God your first priority? Another way that we could ask this question is, who or what is on the throne of your life? Is honoring God your first priority? Who or what is on the throne of your life? Does God get leftovers from your your schedule? Does God get leftovers from your time or your relationships? who or what is on the throne of your life. You know, right now, outside of time and space, there's a scene of worship that's unfolding perpetually. It's been going on for eons, and it's happening now, and it's, it's going to happen into eternity. And what's happening is that Jesus is seated on the throne. And there are 24 elders that are gathered around Jesus, and they're throwing down their crowns time and time again and they're saying worthy worthy is the lamb who was slain before the th- foundations of the earth. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. Worthy is he to receive glory and honor and power and riches and fame. It's happening again. There it goes again. It's happening again. Jesus is receiving worship. Who's on the throne of your life? When you picture your life before the throne of God, what posture are you in? Is your posture one of turning your back to God? Is your posture one of being on your knees before God? Is your, is your posture one of laying flat, prostrate before God? Where is your life focused in worship of Jesus? Is honoring God your first priority? And this is a challenging question to ask. I feel four fingers pointed back at me when I'm teaching this to you. Who's on the throne of your life? Whatever role that you have, you have that role because Jesus wants glory. Everything in your life is speaking. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes that whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Jesus wants glory. Jesus is somewhat of of a glory hog. He... He's always wanting the glory, and he's worthy to receive that glory. You know, but that's challenging to us because we want the glory, don't we? So oftentimes we want the glory. We, we, we put our, our, kid, our fancy pictures of our kids up on social media. Look at my sparkly kids. Look at my sparkly life. Get some likes there. Maybe somebody will like it. Somebody's got to like it. Look at my fancy life. We want glory. We want to take that glory. But Jesus wants the glory. And everything in our life is speaking. You know, there's a, an old um, Belgian theologian who wrote that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine mine. He wants it all. Jesus wants our whole hearts. Now, will he work with a a half-hearted? Yes. Yes, I believe that he will. He's not a taskmaster. He says, I can work with that. We'll get there. Don't worry. But there's not one square inch of the whole of creation to which Jesus, by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, that Jesus doesn't declare, mine. (laughs) Mine. He wants it all. He wants the entirety of our hearts. Everything that we are, the totality of who you are. He says, I don't, I don't want, I don't like this grapefruit Christianity. I don't want to see your life compartmentalized. I want you to be whole. You know, like the, the whole... Um, Trivial Pursuit Pies. Have you played that game, Trivial Pursuit? That's sometimes how we look at our lives. We look at our faith like it's Trivial Pursuit Pie. Like, we, you know, we, we get to scoot our piece, you know. We get the question right in Trivial Pursuit. We scoot our piece down a couple spaces, and we get a piece of the pie, and we put the piece of the pie in there, and we've got our sex life here, and we've got, we've got our money over here, and we've got our, you know, time with God on Sunday over here, and we've got our our relationship with our spouse over here, and we've got our kids right here. Jesus is saying, I don't want that for you. I want you to be whole. I want you to be free. I want you to experience freedom. No more grapefruit Christianity. I want the totality of who you are. Jesus wants it all, and he's a jealous lover as well, and so he won't, he won't stand far off. He'll pursue you until he has the whole of your heart. Isn't that a good one? That God won't stay away. He, he's faithful to his promise to give us life and life to the full. And so he's going to accomplish that. He's, he's faithful to the good work that he started in your heart. And some of you need to hear that this morning, that he's not giving up on you. And, and you might be looking around your life and you might say, you might say, that's fine, preacher. I, I'm trying to give. I'm trying to give everything. I'm trying to give my heart. Maybe Jesus might be telling you to stop trying and let him try and get you. You know, it's one thing to pursue God. It's another thing to let him pursue you. He wants the whole of who you are. Jesus wants our yes. Not just parts of our day, but the whole deal. The next question is, are you known for your integrity? We read here in chapter 7, verse 2, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Why? Because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. Are you known for your integrity? Hanani was known for his character. What does that mean? integrity. Well, we're going to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Normally, what will happen when somebody tells you about integrity and what integrity means, they will say this. They will say, well, integrity is what you do when no one else is watching. And that's so very true. And we're going to talk about that. But we're also going to talk about it from another perspective, What we're going to say, because sometimes, because what I, okay, what I don't want us to hear in this is the guilt and the shame that's sometimes associated with, like, hearing, like, it's what you do when no one else is watching. You know, like, God's like, be careful, like, don't do it again. Oh, you did it again. Like, that's really who God is. Like, that's really who the Father's heart is. And that's not who he is at all. You know, he's not out to get you. He's not out to, like, smack your hand if you've, like, done that thing again, whatever that thing is for you. You know what I'm saying? That's not his character. That's not who he is. And so integrity has more to do, has more, it's, integrity is more than simply not doing wrong things. Yes. Yes. Integrity is more, integrity and character have more to do with, like, doing the right things, whether anybody's watching you or not. Really it's got, so let's think about it a little bit deeper. It really it's got little to do with who's watching you. Who? It doesn't matter who's watching you. Are you saying yes to Jesus? Then that's integrity. It's got less to do with sin avoidance and more to do with kingdom advancement. That looks like from the one side, you know, are you cutting corners? Are you when, you, when you sit down to do your taxes with your CPA and he comes to you and he says, you know, I could get you a little bit more over here. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? On the other side of things, it's like integrity is like, you know what? I got a really great refund back this year. I'm going to take some initiative And I'm going to give that to the homeless shelter because there's people there who need it. You know what I'm saying? It's like two sides of the same coin. Integrity is. Is that clear? Or do I need to? Okay, clear. Let's move on. Okay, so are you known for your integrity? You know, Jesus was full of the Father's Character, And so when we look for a definition or a measurement of who integrity looks like, what integrity looks like, our measuring stick is way off. We, you know, if we are really honest with ourselves and with one another and with God— we would say that we judge ourselves amongst ourselves all the time. Like we are saying, we look, we look at what our friends are driving. We like to think that we have more control and influence over our decisions than we actually do. You know, it's like, gosh, that person's got Pokemon Go. <laughs> I need to get it too, and... And then, like, 5 million people share the same source of information in less than 72 hours. That's crazy, by the way. That's crazy. That's our, that's our culture. Isn't that crazy? That, f- that 5 million people shared the same bit of information in less than 72 hours? That would never happen, like, 20 years ago. It's so fast. So fast. Um, okay. It's, okay. We're, I, <laughs> Pokemon Go, I lost it. Dang it. <laughs> Okay, so Jesus Jesus was full of the Father's character. Okay. So our measurements stick us off because we we compare ourselves amongst ourselves. We say, "Well, my my kids, you know, we look at the the highlight reel of social media and we like and we're like, "Crap, I'm not doing good in life. You know, my kids aren't as shiny as like theirs." And, you know, why they're, man, they got that new job and I'm like stuck at McDonald's. And they you know, look at that sweet new car that they got. And my car is like rusty and, I, and it won't even like the oil leaks and like, gosh, man, look how buff they are. They do like CrossFit all the time. How do they do that? You know, I I, I go to the gym once and then I'm like done, you know, I, I don't have the willpower or the self-control. <laughs> You know, the problem is, is that our measuring stick is off. You know, Jesus is the plumb line. Jesus is who we're to be measuring our lives against. We're not to be measuring our lives against one another. That's not what we're for. That's not what, why we're created. We're not created to, to judge and compare ourselves with one another. That's all it is on social media. People are trying to father one another. That's not what we're supposed to be doing who are you? You're not the gardener. I'm going to like that. I'm going like, to like it. I give you my stamp of approval. Bam. <laughs> now you should feel special that I like that, that you did. That's not who we are. Are you trimming? The, are you pruning the vines? Are you the vine dresser? No, you are not. Jesus is the vine dresser. Jesus fathers us quite well. He doesn't need you to father other people like that. Now, it's true, you're called to be fathers and mothers in the city, but not like that. That's not the way that you do it. So Jesus is our perfect example of integrity. After he was baptized, remember, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. The enemy tempts him, tries to strip him and corrupt his integrity. But Jesus tempted every way as we are, but was without sin. Without sin, like Hebrews 4.15 says, tempted in every way, yet he never offended God once. That's the definition of integrity right there. That's what it looks like. That's our plumb line. That's our standard. That's the foundation. How did Jesus deal with temptation? And if you want to know how the father feels about this to further drive home the point of like the father not out to get you. you. You need look no further than what the son looks like. It was interesting. This week we were like busy bees. We had like people over to our house like every night. It's great. We love people. And um, the other night we had a group of people over and we were in conversation. Now, th- over the past few months, I've been meeting with one of the guys who's over at our house, his son. And you know, over the course of time, you get to know people. You get to know like their little mannerisms and stuff. And that's what makes them them. And it's like one of the special things about like getting to know people and like reading the, reading the mannerisms. Like when they do that with their nose, that means that. You know what I'm saying? Little stuff like that. It's the joys of getting to know other people apart from a computer screen. I am. So I can work it in. I can work it in like every other way. Uh, so so um, uh, we were hanging out with this group of people and the father um, is talking with Sarah and I. And during the course of conversation, he does this thing with his mouth like that. And wouldn't you know it, that's like the exact same thing that his son does. Like, I just saw that same look like, the, like a week before. I'm like, oh my gosh! It's like a chip off the old block, right? We spend time around the Father and we get to look like Him. We get to move like Him. We get to, we get to be like Him. So if you want to know how the Father feels about the poor, you you need to look no further than how Jesus treated the poor. Does the Father love and have forgiveness for you? Well, did did Jesus show you that he loved you and have forgiveness for you? How does the Father feel about the religious spirit? Well, how does Jesus feel about the religious spirit? What does Jesus do with the table in the temple? That's how the father feels about it. The son is a spitting image of the father, as, as John Wimber used to say. It's a chip off the old block. And another thing with integrity is that it's, uh, the, the word of God, Jesus, is always describing integrity as truth. Truth. What is the truth? Well Jesus is the only real truth. He's the only way to eternal life, right? We're told nobody goes nobody gets to have truth without having Jesus, right? And a lot of times Jesus would used to begin statements and he would say verily, sometimes verily verily. I don't even know what verily means. Verily, I tell you the truth. Verily, I tell you the truth. Or, truly, I say it to you. Which, in essence, means Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth. Every time, regardless of where you're at, I'm going to tell you the truth. You know, Jesus never lied, He never told a white lie, He never told a big lie. Jesus always will tell you the truth. And that's annoying sometimes, isn't it? Jesus will tell you the truth when you're depressed. Jesus will tell you the truth when you're joyous. Jesus will tell you the truth when you're broke. Jesus will tell you the truth when you're rich. Jesus will tell you the truth when you're getting along with your spouse and Jesus will tell you the truth when you're fighting with your spouse. Jesus will tell you the truth about your kids. Jesus will tell you the truth about your vocation. Jesus will tell you the truth about your past and Jesus will tell you the truth about your future. Jesus will give you insight and to your co-worker's present situation. Jesus tells you the truth. He can't help but tell you the truth. The adverse is that the enemy is a liar. He can't help speak lies. That's his native tongue. He always speaks lies. He's always out to kill, steal, and destroy you. But Jesus won't do that. Jesus will always lead you out of a, a sense of love. Jesus will never lead out of manipulation or fear. Jesus will always lead out of a sense of love. You can trust Jesus, and that's the thing with integrity. If you have integrity, people will trust you. Do people trust you? Now, in a, a, at face value, we'd like to say, "Yeah, you know, I'm a pretty trustworthy people person. I can, I, I can be counted on to keep my word." We like to think of ourselves as good, trustworthy Christians, don't we? But how often can we not keep our word? How often often is it? It's. (laughs) I bet it's more often than you might think. I bet it's daily that we cannot keep our word. What we say we're going to do, we cannot do. We lack the resource in and of ourselves to do it. We can't follow through on the promises that we make. We can't keep the appointments that we said we'd keep. We can't keep the vows we give to our spouse. We lack resource. But Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus always keeps his promises. Jesus never broke a promise. Jesus never made a promise that he never kept. Always keeps his promises to us. And that's the, the great thing about people who are full of integrity. Is they're learning how to shape. They're, they're being shaped you see, they're being shaped and chiseled to look more like Jesus. And that means that daily, though things are wasting away on the outside, inwardly they're being renewed. People who follow Jesus with their whole lives and are saying yes, are being renewed. And that sense of integrity is being sharpened and chiseled to look more and more like Jesus. So when you walk into somebody's presence who is full of integrity, don't you feel completely safe? Don't you feel like, gosh, I can trust this person. I can count on them. Why can't I count? Man, every time they're there for me. You know anybody like that? They're rare people, but when you meet them, Stay close by him because they're being shaped to look more and more like Jesus every day. That's the heart of God in somebody when you find a trustworthy person that you can depend on. Nehemiah 7.2. He was given Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the command was given charge of the citadel. Why? Because he was a man of integrity, we said. And why else? Because he feared God more than most men do. The fear of God is tricky business, y'all. So we'll um, try to take it out of the courtroom and into relationship. So fear of God is less about being afraid and more about like honoring and reverence of God. Be reverent of God. To have an understanding. And this honoring generates obedience to Jesus and the things that he's calling you to be. And a good illustration is that of gravity. So, we all, we all know that the law of gravity exists. Yes? Yes. And sometimes that's not fun. <laughs> Because sometimes you just want to fly away from the world and its problems. But most times, I'm sure you would agree that the law of gravity is a good, good thing. The law of gravity keeps our feet on the ground. Gravity keeps our feet on the ground. Gravity keeps this earth from imploding on itself. Gravity keeps all the waters in the oceans, so that the oceans do not float up from the foundation of the earth and boil in the earth's atmosphere. Gravity is a really good thing. But most folks would agree that they wouldn't tempt gravity by hurling themselves off of a bridge without a parachute or skydiving. Yes? We wouldn't, tempt, we wouldn't tempt gravity. So the fear of God is like this. He's not out to get you. The Father is not out to get you. God is not out to get you. He's not out to rub it in. He's out to rub it out. He's not out to get you. At the same time, the, the more we fear God, I think like the more he trusts us. You know, Hannah and I and Hannah and I were given places of influence because they were like super really, really good looking and they had the cool haircut and they were more wealthy than anybody else and they were really strong. No, they were given places of influence because they had integrity and character. And because they feared God more than anything else, more than anyone else, they said, God, I'm out to please you. I don't, I don't care about, all, you know, not flippantly, but I don't care about all these other opinions and perspectives that people have. I'm out to please you. I'm living my life so that you smile upon my life at the end of the day. That's why they were given places of influence. Mm -hmm. And Paul says in Galatians, I want to read this. It's important. 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. When you, when you fear God, His opinion of you matters significantly. And the opinions of everyone else can fade into nothingness. And when we think about who we're living our lives before, it's tiring, isn't it? When, when, you're, living, when you're living your life out of a sense of trying to please everybody and win the approval of everyone and and hear words of affirmation spoken over your life from other people constantly in order to breathe, in order to survive. I've got to please this person. I've got to make sure I make a good first impression. I've got to put my best foot forward. I've got to make sure that I have the nicest house. I've got to make sure that my car measures up to that sweet Hummer or SUV that they have or awesome organic Prius that they drive. It's so tiring. so frustrating compared to the simplicity of, you know what? I'm just living for the smile of my Father. How simple that is. How, free, how freeing that feels to our souls when we're just saying, you know, you know, I just, I just, need, to have, I just need to have your smile in my life, God. Father, so long, so long as I come to the end of the day and you're happy with me, so simple. But how often we trade, we trade the smile of our father for for what? For the approval of some stranger we've never met at Starbucks? (laughs) You know, we're sold out so easily. We trade it, we trade our integrity off so easily for stuff that doesn't matter. I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to myself too. I'm not just preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. Okay. In Nehemiah seven four, we read on. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials. And the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had, been the first, uh, who had been the first to return. And this is what I found written there. And I'm not going to torture you by me reading through the census there towards the end. We're running out of time. I value your time. And also, you've already seen me do that once. So you've already laughed at me once earlier in, in, the, in the book. I'm not going to read those names again. Okay? Don't make me do it. Um, so, so basically what's happening is that Nehemiah is gathering the people to take a census. That's what's happening. But what I love here is in verse 5. When he writes, so my God put it into my heart. My God put it into my heart. And some of you have come to me throughout the week and you've said um, that you love, you've been loving going through Nehemiah. And specifically what you like about it is that um, it's so personal. Nehemiah is writing from the first person. A lot of the Bible is written in the third person. So Nehemiah is sharing the story as it unfolds. And that's what we see here. And that's one of my favorite things about this this book as well, is that Nehemiah is writing from a personal standpoint. He's saying, my God, put it into my heart to do this thing. It's deeply personal. And that's the next question, is that are you close enough to God to hear from him? And I'm not talking so much about proximity here. I'm talking about relationship. Are you near enough? Are you allowing yourself to be interrupted throughout the week? Are you interruptible person? Sometimes we're so focused on our own agendas. We go to the grocery store and I've got, you know, the list from Sarah on my phone. I've, I need to pick up shrimp and two lemons and a bag of ice. And I'm focused on that, that I miss. You know, I wonder at the end of my days sometimes, like, how much I've missed. How much have I missed? Because I'm so focused on, like, what I need to get done or my achievements or my, what I need to get accomplished for the day that I miss life. You know, I miss the fact that I'm not the center of the universe. Do you want to hear, you want to hear a, a fact of the matter is that you are not the center of the universe. The sun does not revolve around your existence. The sun doesn't rise in the sky for you or me. You are not the center of the universe. You are not your own God. You don't control your own destiny. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. The sun shines for him and him alone. He's the, he's the, he's true north on the compass He's the greatest phenomenon that the world has ever known. He's the center of the universe. He's the fact of historical past, and he's where the future is headed. He's the center of the universe. It's not you, it's not me. Your agenda for what you want to see accomplished in your little world is nothing compared to the person in the presence of Jesus. Are you saying, I don't matter? Is that what you're saying? Yes, you matter. You're dearly loved by God. Let's get on with it and bring change in life to the city because we serve someone who is the center of the universe. Yes, you don't matter. Yes, all of God in all of you, all of Christ in all of you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You bring Christ with you wherever you go, wherever you go. Is it about you? Yeah, kind of it's about you, but no, it's not really about you. Jesus is the center of the universe. He's so good. And so... He says, in John 14:29, Jesus says, "I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. We need to be interrupted." And lastly, we'll finish with this. How can I contribute? In Nehemiah 7:70, 7, we read this, in 770, some of the heads of the families contributed to the work the governor gave to the treasury, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So Notice how he said, some did, and that infers that some did not. If all would have given, Nehemiah would have written, all gave, but some gave and some did not. You know, it's so easy in our culture to become a spectator. It's so easy to become a fan. It's so easy to sit on the sidelines and pretend like we had something to do with the transformation when really we were just checking our computer screen. It's so easy to sit back and say, I'm a part of that, when really you have nothing to do with it. So my encouragement to us this morning, myself included, is to be like the people in Nehemiah and give your heart fully to the work. Let's give our hearts fully because, and here's why. Because one, the work is too big for any one of us to finish. And that's how we know it's of God. It's of God. This thing of bringing life to the city is something that Jesus wants to do in our time. And I can't do it alone. Tom can't do it. The staff can't do it. You can't do it alone. And 1 Corinthians says that the body of Christ is made up of different parts. We're compared to a body. We each have gifts. And I guess what I'm saying is that we need you. We need one another. We need one another in order to bring life to the city. Paul writes, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good. Your gift is not for your success. Your talent is not for your achievements. Your your giftedness is to be a blessing. Why? For the common good. You were given the gifts that you were given, not for you. They weren't given so you could write hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed life. Look at my blessed life. Look how sweet. Look how sweet. I'm so blessed. No, you're blessed to be a blessing to other people in this city. You're you're called to rewrite the narrative of the city. And when, when you step into understanding of who you are, that you are dearly loved by God, and you get healed as you go to love the city, you'll begin to see that you are blessed not for yourself, but you are blessed for other people. Blessed, you're favored. That means that you're favored, that there's something of God's smile that's resting on your life. That's what being blessed means. When somebody says hashtag blessed, I'm not really sure that's what they mean, but it's something of favor that rests on your life. There's something of God's smile that, that hovers over you wherever you go so that no matter where you are, whether you're in a church building or whether you're on East 4th Street or whether you're in Parma Heights or you're in Brook Park or you're in Shaker Heights, or you're, wherever you are, you simply release the thing that you carry. You're blessed to be a blessing to other people. Why don't you join me in standing? A lot of times it's easy to brush off questions and it's like, you know, check, got it, honoring God's my first priority, got it, check, you know, and then we forget about it, we go through our week and we forget about it and, you know, some of you might not have even heard the questions, you thought it was a good time for a nap and that's cool, holy naps are good, I've taken, (laughs) I take some of them through my own sermons sometimes. And that's fine. But questions, um, these questions are good for us to remember throughout the week. You know, every morning waking up and saying, God, are you on the throne of my life today? I want to honor you. Will you help, will you you shape me to be a man or a woman of integrity who follows your heart with everything that is in me? Will Will you do that work in me today again? You know, Asking the Lord to shape us. If you're a small group leader or you're a leader in the church, would you come forward? We're going to present like a time of ministry. Rufus is going to lead us in song of worship.